And this is true of the unsaved, just like it's true of the saved. The unsaved says, I will be rightly related to God by needs of my own goodness. Sometimes we think that the study of world religions is a really complicated study. It can be, but it really all boils down to this. There's one group of people that say, I am, I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and I know I can't save myself, and I trust God to save me through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then there's everybody else. Most everybody else is trying to be good enough to earn their way into heaven. If you really talk to them closely enough, they're all trying to work their way into heaven. That's what an unsaved man says. They want to have a relationship with God. It's a built-in need that people have. But they don't necessarily want to do it God's way. They don't want to come with the empty hands of faith. They want to come with something in their hands to show God that they're worthy of salvation. But the saved person oftentimes wants to have a relationship with God, a fellowship relationship, on their terms and not on God's terms. The, the saved person says, I will come to worship God, but I want to come on my terms. I don't want to come on God's terms. And God says, no. Who do you think you are? Both to the saved and the unsaved that tries to approach him on their own terms. I remember having a conversation with a very close relative of mine several years back. We were at the kitchen table. And I asked him about his own spiritual status, his salvation. He was almost indignant. And he said, well, I'm just trying to be good enough to get to heaven. I said, really, how good do you have to be? Then he pointed out to me that he had taught Sunday school, Methodist church, for over 30 years. I said, that's great, but have you ever trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life? At the time, never would answer the question. Later on, I found out that he actually has done that, and I'm very happy about it. But I'll tell you what, just trying to be good enough? Old Testament says that our own goodness, our righteousness, are like filthy rags before God. And I won't go into the specifics of the filthy rags, but it's bad. It's nothing that we want to place before God and say, this is me, this is my good stuff right here. No, that's the way God looks at our good stuff. He says, you come to me the way I prescribe you to come to me, or don't come at all. We come by grace through faith, or we don't come at all. So many Christians today, though, in their worship, they say, I'll come to God in worship, but I'm only going to come under my terms. I'll come to you in worship. I'll worship you, God, if I don't have to dress up, if I don't have to sit there too long, if the music suits me. If I don't have to serve in any way, if I don't have to give, I'll come to you if the hours are convenient for me. I want a Saturday night worship service, but I want an early Saturday night so it doesn't affect my date night and it doesn't affect my golf game the next day. I'll worship you if it's under my terms. Oh, I'll worship you if you entertain me in the process. That's big today. There was a book that was written several years ago, and I want to use some of the names because they're the ones that made it a bestseller. They put it out. But there was a process that was preached in terms of starting a new church that went something like this. We live in a community called Saddleback, so we're going to come up with two people called Saddleback Sam and Saddleback Sally. These are the model of the people that we want. And so those are the people we're going to interview to see what kind of church would Saddleback Sam and Saddleback Sally come to. This is what they did. They went through that very wealthy community and did whatever they could to find out, to, to interview every Saddleback Sam and every Saddleback Sally that they could find. Saddleback Sam and Saddleback Sally were a certain age group. I think it was something like 30 to 45, something like that. They had a certain number of children. They had a certain income level. And then they asked all the people that fit that criteria, what would it take to get to you to come to church on Sunday morning? It went like this. They would knock on the door and they say, hey, listen, we're, we're Bob and Jane from 
this particular church down the street, we're just getting started. We'd like to ask you a few questions. First, do you have a local church? If they said yes, then they would say, hey, thank you very much. I appreciate that's all that we needed to know. If they went to the next door of the people that fit that demographic and fit that model, they went to the next door and said, hey, do you have a, we're so-and-so, we come down from this church, and we'd just like to ask, ask you if you have a local church. Well, no, I don't. Okay, can we ask you a few more questions? Well, why not? Just so it's short. We won't take any time at all. What would it take to get you to come to church on a Sunday morning? Can I ask you a few categories? What kind of what kind of way would you like to dress at church? What kind of music would you like to hear? How long would you like the sermon to be? What time would you like the service to start? Then they develop, and not just this church, but this was a movement that went all the way through the United States. Then they develop a church based upon the answers to the survey. They allowed either non-Christians or non-church Christians to develop the worship service. And you know what God says? And I don't care how many thousands of people you have coming. God says, no, that's not the way you approach me. I'm sure there are many, many wonderful things that have happened there. A lot of evangelism has taken place. But this is a perfect example of what we see in Malachi tonight. They're wanting to worship God, but only on their terms. I'm only going to come if I get to wear shorts and sandals. I'm only going to come if I can wear a T-shirt. I'm only going to come if the service only lasts an hour. If it goes over an hour, we're not coming. I'm only going to come if the music is the type of music that I like. And God says, no, who do you think you are? You don't get to set the terms of the way you're going to come to me. We've seen in Malachi chapter 2, the Jews' insistence on coming to God in worship on their own terms. And these terms were hypocritical. Their spiritual eyes were no better. Their spiritual eyes were hypocritical. Now, as chapter 2 ends, we read verse 17, which serves as a transition between chapters 2 and 3. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, or he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Again, this verse is a transitional verse between the two chapters. Now, here are the facts. This is the fact as Malachi states it. The fact is, you have wearied the Lord. That's the fact. In other words, the Lord's patience is running thin with these people. This is a figure of speech, of course. It's called anthropopathism. It ascribes to God a human characteristic which he doesn't actually possess in order to, to communicate an, an infinite idea to finite man. God communicates to us by way of analogy. Briefly, there are three theories on how God communicates to us. One is called the univocal theory of communication. That means there's a one-to-one -one correspondence, the way God is, the way he communicates himself to us. There are very few, if any, people, any real scholars that would hold to a univocal view. You know why? Because if there's a one-to-one -one correspondence, exactly the way God is, is exactly the way we understand him to the degree of perfection, who would you have to be to understand God that way? You'd have to be God. So that's why the univocal theory is essentially rejected, at least by most serious thinkers in theology. But there's another theory that's at the other end of it. While the univocal theory says there's a one-to-one -one correspondence, the equivocal theory says there's no correspondence. The words, of, the words of Scripture present a God, but that's not the way it is. I know the words of Scripture say that God is love, but God is not love. Because he's so totally other than us, we could never understand him. Almost everybody rejects the, uh, an equivocal view because there's no divine revelation at all with an equivocal view. 
the view that most in the scholarly community take is, a, is an analogical view, meaning that God communicates to us information about himself, about his infinite self, in terms and ideas that a finite mind could understand. In other words, this is the way that God is, this is what God is like. In our experience, this is what God is like. So when Malachi says, God is weary, you have wearied him. Obviously, an omnipotent God doesn't get tired. But what Malachi is attempting to communicate, the Holy Spirit through Malachi, is that, listen, God just had about enough of this nonsense. He has just about had enough of it. He's tired of it. But they answer back in their hypocrisy, well, how have we wearied him? Isn't isn't this just like people who would have wearied God? They have no idea. How have we wearied him? Or to put it another way, this is what Malachi says that they're actually saying. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Malachi says that's really what you're saying. You're doing evil, but God considers it good. Now, how smart is that? Malachi says that's not the way God works. The bottom line to what they're saying is that they've performed this evil for so long, and there doesn't seem to have been any, any repercussions from that evil, that they finally, they finally just say, well, where is this God of justice? You say that this God exists, that he's a God of justice, but I hadn't seen any justice. I seem to be doing really well, thank you very much. And a lot of people today would say that too, in their pride and in their arrogance. I'm doing really well. In Psalm 73, the psalmist looks at this, and he, he almost stumbles. Because he saw people that weren't worshiping God at all. And he says, there's no pain in their deaths. They don't seem to have any problem in their life at all. And he said, I almost fail. I almost betrayed a generation of people until I came into the sanctuary of the Lord. And I saw things God's way. God's justice will take care of this at some point. And that's what Mal- the point Malachi is going to make in the first five verses of chapter 3. Where is the God of justice? Mal- they ask. Well, Malachi is about to tell you. You you ask, you're fixing to find out. But Malachi is saying to these people, I want you to get this. Malachi is saying to these people that would say something so silly. He's saying, essentially, if I could put it into Koine English, are you out of your mind? Are you really out of your mind to think that you can talk that way to God and get away with it? To think that you can interact that way with God and get away with it? What can you possibly be thinking? God was weary, to use that term of accommodation. He was weary of their hypocrisy, their blatant immorality, their spiritual blindness, and their stubbornness. Now, that's what we've studied before, particularly in the last two lessons. That's what God is weary of, and his patience is wearing thin. Then we get to chapter 3. This is what he's going to deal with in the first five verses. He's going to deal with this fact that God's patience is running thin. You think you can come to God any way you want to come to him, and God's going to bless that. Just because of who you are, maybe how good looking you are, how much money you have. I don't know what they were thinking. They weren't thinking. Now we get to chapter 3, verse 1. This verse is actually a verse that is quoted in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, it is revealed that the person, the first person we're being referred to is John the Baptist. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all quote this verse, or at least a part of it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
We all know, because we are familiar with the New Testament, John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. And the Lord here is Jesus Christ. Notice that phrase, he will clear the way before me. That's Yahweh who's speaking here. This verse gives us a very, very close connection between the first and the second persons of the Trinity. If you happen to have a very well-meaning, perhaps, Jehovah's Witness come by your home sometime, and they say Jesus isn't God, if you want to take them to an unusual passage to perhaps show them that, yes, he was, this is one of those places that you can take him to. Because we know the me referred to here is Jesus, and the me is Yahweh speaking. Before Messiah comes, or past tense now, before he came, someone would come and prepare the way for him. This is written 400 years before the event takes place. So we're looking at it from that direction right now. One of the things that the Jews had to get right before Messiah was going to set up his kingdom was they had to get their lives right. They couldn't just be worshiping God in any way and get away with it. Again, back to what we had said previously, they had to get rid of their hypocrisy, their immorality, their spiritual blindness, and their stubbornness. That's why when John the Baptist comes on the scene, the very first words out of his mouth are repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the very first thing he tells them. You've got to repent. And a lot of people don't understand John the Baptist's ministry. But it goes all the way back to Malachi. Remember in chapter 2, they're doing these, they have immoral worship, and then they have this, the whole immorality of trying to live a life of immorality and then pretend that you're worshiping well. So this is the hypocrisy that we've been speaking of. This has got to change. You can't do that and usher in the Messianic era. They've got to change. That's why John the Baptist's message is, time to change. Repent. In fact, it's interesting, that was Jesus' first message too. Repent. Prepare yourself for the coming Messiah and the kingdom. This is one of the things about John the Baptist's ministry, is, is baptism. John the Baptist's baptism was different than the baptisms that we undergo. We shouldn't get them confused. It's different from Christian baptism. Our baptism is a public proclamation of a private faith in Jesus Christ. We're telling the world that we have indeed trusted Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to grant us eternal life. That's what was a public proclamation. John's baptism was different. John's baptism was an identification with the kingdom. It was a baptism for the remission of sins. In other words, they were being identified with this repentance. And I generalize, but that's basically it. We've studied it before. They're being identified with this repentance. That's why when Jesus comes to John and wants to be baptized, John says, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not baptizing you. You've got nothing of which you need to repent. And Jesus says, do it anyway. Both Jesus and John had as their early messages, repent. You've got to change this behavior. You cannot worship any way you want to worship, live any way you want to live, and expect God to bless it. It doesn't work that way. Unfortunately, again, historically, we know that the Jews didn't repent. At least by and large, they didn't. Some individuals did, but it was a small group, really. But the leadership didn't repent, and the leadership reflected the lack of repentance on the part of the nation. Jesus withdraws the offer of the kingdom. Hold your place here and turn over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. 
those that study Matthew and spend a lot of time in it recognize Matthew chapter 12 as one of the major turning points in Jesus' ministry. It is here that he actually withdraws the offer of the kingdom to Israel and postpones it to a later time. There are some other interesting things that are going on here. Dwight Pentecost used to point out that before Matthew 12, Jesus ministered to very larger and larger and larger audiences. After Matthew 12, with the exception of Matthew 14, he ministers to smaller and smaller audiences later on in his ministry, spending most of his time with his disciples. Because he's no, he knows he's leaving, the kingdom's going to be postponed. But you wonder what would have happened to demonstrate in such an egregious way that the Jews had so rejected the idea of coming to the Messiah on his terms and not theirs, what could have possibly happened to cause Jesus to say, that's enough. That's it. You have not repented. It doesn't look like you're going to, so I'm going to withdraw this offer. You're not going to have it on your terms. It's got to be on my terms. What could have happened? Well, I'm glad you asked, because in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, this is the turning point of the gospel narratives, according to many New Testament scholars. Then there was brought to him, brought to Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. Now, I want you to notice something here. The people that are going to challenge this don't challenge the fact that a miracle occurred. That's not, that's not, they're not saying, that's just what it looked like. We know that guy, and he wasn't really blind. They're not saying any of that. They're going to recognize that the miracle occurred. Verse 23. And all the multitudes were amazed, and they began to say, this cannot be the son of David, can he? Verse 24, though, this is one of the key verses of rejection in all of the Word of God. And this is what caused Jesus to say, you're not repenting, I'm pulling this offer back. You cannot come to me on your terms. This is the height of rejection. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. You know what they're saying? Yeah, he did a miracle. I'll grant you that. Did the miracle. But he did the miracle, not in the power of God, not in the power of the Holy Spirit. He did it in the power of Satan. And that's about as big of a rejection as you can possibly have. Jesus wasn't God, they're saying. Jesus was the polar opposite of God. He was evil. He was Satan. He wasn't the seed of the woman like we studied this morning. He wasn't the one who was ultimately good that would ultimately conquer evil that was promised back in Genesis 3.15. That's not who Jesus was. The Pharisees see the miracle. They're faced with the evidence. And when, they're, when they come face-to-face -face with the evidence, they have to do something with it. They have to either fall on their knees and say, we have been wrong all this time. And we have been worshiping wrong. We've been leading people wrong. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's not by works, as Jesus had been teaching. Or we have to reject him outright. There's not any in between here. And they go the other way. They will not fall on their knees. They will not submit themselves to his leadership. They do the polar opposite. Well, later on in this chapter, Jesus talks about sins that are unpardonable, and actually the unpardonable sin in context is saying that Jesus cast out demons by power of Beelzebub. That's the unpardonable sin in context. We can broaden that if we wanted to look at the significance of this chapter in saying that the un unpardonable sin is rejection of Christ as Savior, rejection of Jesus Christ for who he was. So back to Malachi, what's happening in the beginning of Malachi, Malachi is saying, listen, there's going to come a time and there will be a messenger, and he's going to come to you. And we know that the messenger has this message of repentance to get him to clean up this act of hypocrisy, blatant immorality, spiritual blindness, and stubbornness. You've got to clean it up, not for salvation, but to come to God in the way that he intends to have you come to him. 
They just wouldn't do it. So the so John the Baptist comes before the Messiah. The nation doesn't repent, and we know historically that the offer of the kingdom was withdrawn. I want you to look at something here in verse 1, in verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. If you, I know several of you are, I see you doing it. If you're inclined to mark something, I would put a little slash after the word me and before the next word and. He will clear the way before me. Because Malachi, like many of the other prophets, did not distinguish between first advent and second advent. What he's doing here, there is actually a gap, a very large gap between the phrase, he will clear the way for me, and then the next phrase, and the, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. There's some disagreement about this, but by and large, we have to understand that even though Jesus came into the temple many times when he was here on earth, he came as a young infant to be circumcised. He came many times after that. We know a time when he was 12. Certainly he did when he was an adult. That's not what's being referred to here. The context doesn't allow it. This sudden appearance at the temple, this is his second advent that's being spoken of here. So there is a big gap in time between the, the phrase before me and then the next phrase, and the Lord whom you seek. A large gap in time, in fact. Jesus did come to the temple in his first advent. But when he comes to the temple in judgment, and I know he cleansed the temple twice, but that's not what this is talking about. When he comes in full judgment to clean all of this up, that's not until the second advent. After the church age has ended, the, the church age ends with the rapture, the resurrection of the church. There will begin a seven-year period that's called in the Bible the tribulation, the last three years, the great tribulation. And this is a period of intense discipline and cleansing for the nation Israel. That's what the rest of this is going to be referring to. This time that we call the tribulation is a time of national discipline, and there will be, at that time, some national repentance. Not every Jew is going to repent in the tribulation, but there will be a whole lot of them that do because they're finally going to get it. But one of the things they're even going to have to learn in the tribulation is they don't get to come to Messiah on their own terms. They've got to humble themselves and come on God's terms. In the days of Amos, the Jews argued that they were looking forward to this coming day of the Lord. Because they thought that's God's going to make all wrongs right at that point in time and everything's going to be good for us. But Amos told them, very bluntly, that the day of the Lord for them would be a time of darkness and not of light. And he was saying essentially to the people back in his day, you better be careful what you wish for, sport. Because for you, the way that you're living your life right now, the way that you're worshiping in a hypocritical way, it's interesting. Same thing in Amos's day as it was in Malachi's day. They'd never seem to get past this. No, no, for you, the day of the Lord is not going to be that great of a time. The day of the Lord is something that we have spent quite a lot of time on in the past, but, but just to jar your memory a bit, the day of the Lord could be anything up to and including a thousand and seven year period. Most of the passages that refer to the day of the Lord in the prophets refer to the discipline part of the day of the Lord, the judgment part. The Jews didn't get it, but part of that judgment was upon them. The rest of the judgment was on the Gentiles. 
they wanted that judgment on the Gentiles because they wanted the second part of the day of the Lord, the blessing part, to be a reality. So the day of the Lord could last anywhere, could be referring, depending on the context, anything from the beginning of the tribulation all the way to the end of the millennium. That's why I say a thousand and seven year period. Each passage is context specific as to what part of the day of the Lord is being referred to. And granted, most of the passages that, that refer to the day of the Lord refer to that discipline time, discipline of the nation Israel or discipline of the Gentiles. A few refer to the to the time of blessing. But the day of the Lord includes both, in its broad category, includes both discipline and blessing. It's a 1,007-year period. By the way, it includes it in that order. Discipline first, blessing second. The Jews of old always had a problem with that. They always wanted the blessing, but no discipline. They always wanted the blessing, but they didn't want to have to do it God's way. And God says... No, that's not the way it works. The Jews also thought, this is what they focused upon, that the day of the Lord was a time of punishment for Israel's enemies and for the enemies of Yahweh. And it is. What they didn't realize was the way that they were acting, the way they were exhibiting no faith at all, the way they were trying to come to God based upon works, which is a joke because their works were not even presentable works, they didn't realize that they were actually the enemies of Yahweh. The discipline that they were so longing for was going to come down on them. It's like, it's like um, Jack Nicholson in that movie with Tom Cruise, A Few Good Men, when Nicholson gets on the stand and says, You can't handle the truth! That's what Amos is saying. You can't handle the day of the Lord. Don't wish for it. It might just come. And that's not what you really want. It seems that the Jews for centuries, even past Amos' day, had wanted the rescue that's found in the day of the Lord. But they didn't realize that ultimately they had to change. They had to repent. That's essentially what Malachi is going to say now in verses 2 through 4. But back to verse 1 again. Let me show you one more time. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Stop. Double slash, if you will. That's referring to John the Baptist. Now, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, that's also referring to the Lord whom you seek. The messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. There's almost a, just a touch of divine irony here. I prefer to call it irony because some people don't like the word sarcasm and God used in the same sentence. But there's just a little touch of divine irony because Malachi is saying, the Lord in whom you delight. Oh, this Lord that you love so much. Oh, I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. That's what these people would have been saying back then. It's okay. This Jesus that you love so much, he's about to come down and rain down fire on your head right now unless you change. Something has got to change. But it's sudden. That's how discipline is. I wish the Lord would spank me just a little bit at a time to kind of get my attention and say, okay, you better stop it. That's not the way he usually spanks me. I'm usually going along, along the way like a dog on a leash. He jerks me back and whops me real good. 
There's very, really very little warning sometimes. There's not going to be any warning for these folks. It's going to come. You've read things about the tribulation. You know how it just comes wave upon wave, and it just gets worse and worse and worse until it climaxes into all these bowls, tr- judgments, and trumpet judgments. Look at verses 2 through 4 now. But who can endure the day of his coming? Malachi's message is the same as Amos's message. Be careful what you ask for. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? The answer, that's a rhetorical question. The man said, nobody can. Nobody can. For he is like a refiner's fire and like the, the fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. Look, before there's going to be millennial worship, the priesthood has got to be cleansed. And that's where it starts. It starts with the leadership. Do you wonder why when we get into the New Testament, especially in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, There are all these requirements for elders and deacons, people who would be in leadership of any kind of organization, Christian organization, the local church specifically, but even in parachurch ministries, they typically use Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3 as a guideline. It's because it all starts with the leadership. If the leadership is not pure, there's no way that they're going to lead pure worship. Now, I said pure, but I don't mean perfect. There's only been one perfect human being that's ever lived, and I'm not saying this to excuse any behavior on my part, but I am saying that we we can't expect perfection out of our leaders. What we need to expect purity, the way Paul puts it, is that we need to be above reproach. Well, these sons of Levi were not above reproach. So the first group that has got to change is the priesthood because they can't lead something that they're not personally experiencing themselves. Maybe it's because we have been exposed to it so much. I'm not sure. But people can typically see hypocrisy coming a mile away. They see right through hypocritical people. And people see right through hypocritical leadership in any Christian organization. They can see right through it. And if they can't, shame on them because they ought to be able to see right through it. God doesn't play that game. There is going to be a refinement of the priesthood as part of and immediately as part of the disciplinary time of the day of the Lord preceding the blessing day of the Lord. It's got to happen. Before God is going to accept the worship of these people, the hearts of the worshipers needed to be right, and it had to start with the Levitical priests. That's why we said previously in our study, the beginning of chapter 2, that the quality of our worship will reflect the quality of our spiritual lives. That was the application that we made from that text. The quality of our worship is going to reflect the quality of our spiritual lives. Now, churches can do all kind of things. We can come up with all kind of gimmicks to try to get us to worship better. Maybe we can get do, thing, do things with the music or do things with the physical plant. Or, or do things with drama, or do things with dance, whatever it may be. There's all kind of gimmicks to do it, but we can do away with all the gimmicks, set them aside for a moment. The number one thing that has to happen for our worship, and I'm talking about our worship now at our local church, for our worship to be God-honoring is we, each of us, 
as an individual worshiper of God, has to get our spiritual lives right. Because we can't neglect individual worship all week and then magically think we can come together on Sunday morning and worship in a God-honoring way. Our corporate worship will be no better than our individual worship. If we, and we don't, but if we did have a church of, of people that neglected God all week long and then came to church on Sunday morning and God graded our worship service, I'm going to tell you how he's going to grade it. F. Because you can't worship any better on Sunday than you've been worshiping all week. All week is a preparation for what happens on Sunday. It doesn't mean that it's, it's unimportant by saying it's a preparation, but it's a preparation in a sense of getting us ready for corporate worship. There's no way around that principle. No way around it. And the more believers you have in any local church that have quality worship during the week, and by, you know what I mean by quality worship. I'm, I'm talking about Spending time with the Lord in prayer. That's one great way you can check your own spiritual life. If you've gone months and all of a sudden you look back and say, I haven't spent hardly any time in prayer at all, something's wrong with your spiritual life. Another way you can worship privately is spend time in the Word, in daily devotional, daily reading. Sometimes people like to catch up on lessons that they haven't heard at church. They were working in the nursery or upstairs or they were on vacation, whatever it would be. You plug it in the car and you listen to it as you drive down the freeway. Great challenge in Houston. To stay in fellowship when you're driving down the freeway and listening to a tape. One time I had a boombox. That's when that's when cassette recorders were really really large, and I I couldn't hear it because my air conditioning work didn't work because I so I had to roll my windows down. This was back in the 70s, and I put the boombox next to my ear and I'm driving down the road like this. I ran through a yellow. It wasn't even a red, but the policeman was so offended by me having this boombox by my ear he pulled me over. I said I'm I'm listening to a Bible tape. He said Yeah right, <laughs> right you listen to Bible tape. I got a ticket for that. <laughs> it's actually the only ticket I ever got out of in my life, though. I showed up for court because I challenged it. Because I, I looked, I thought he just gave me the ticket because of the boombox. And I took pictures and all that. And I went to court, and, and the policeman didn't show up. I think he might not have showed up because he was trying to cut me some slack. I remember the judge, Judge Wilson. I went up to him and said, the charges are dismissed against you, Mr. Bumgardner. I said, well, I still got these pictures. Would you like to see them? He said, get out of here. <laughs> He didn't think I was funny at all. <laughs> I wonder about our worship sometimes. I really do. It makes me afraid sometimes to wonder if God is growing weary of us. I pray that he's not. But we can look back at these Jewish people, these Israelites, and say, you guys are just horrible people. Or we could take the lesson from this and look in the mirror and make sure that we're keeping an eye on the, on, the, on the ball like we should. And that we're approaching God in the way that he desires to be approached. And that we're not putting conditions up. I'm only going to come if you do this. No. And we need to do the best that we can. Don't get me wrong. We need to do the best that we possibly can with things like physical plan and music and the quality of our sermons, and, and all that. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying it's a different mindset. And it's the mindset of a lot of Christians today. That's why Oz Guinness says Christianity is an inch deep and a mile wide. It's a lot of the mindset of those inch deep Christians say, I'm not doing it unless you do it my way. God says, I don't think so. Let's not try to fool ourselves. If they get it right, once they've been refined, then, in verse 4, then the offering 
that Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now that last phrase really says it all. The beginning part of that, of that list and the list itself is representative of rejection against God. But that last phrase, those who don't fear me. A lot of times we try to weaken that a little bit. Say, those who don't respect me. The Lord's actually fierce. We should be afraid of one thing in the spiritual life, and that is offending the holiness of God. We should be afraid of that. Perfect love casts out all fear, but perfect love means that you're obeying the commandments of God, and you don't have anything to be afraid of. We should be afraid of acting like they were acting in chapter 2. Because God's going to come down. When he lights up that refining fire, it's not a pretty sight. And it's so easily avoided. We think God's way. Don't try to be too smart by half or too clever by half, too ingenious by half. No, do it his way. What verse 5 is telling us is that the judgment is not going to be limited to the Levites. It starts with the Levites. But doesn't stop there. It starts with the leadership of the covenant community. But doesn't stop there. And the same way in the New Testament church, it may start with the leadership. But doesn't stop there. It goes to the whole congregation. Now, what were they doing wrong? Well, God is going to come near to Israel for judgment. He's going to purge the nation of those who are involved in sorcery, adultery, perjury, depriving workers of their wages. I think that's interesting. If you're going to be a businessman for Yahweh, you're going to be an honest businessman for Yahweh. God doesn't really care for people too much that cheat other people and then walk around saying, I'm a Christian. Oppressing widows and orphans, it's a little different then than it is today. A widow, particularly a widow, has a shot at it because there are life insurance policies and a lot of times widows can enter the workforce today. They couldn't back then. If you were a widow and you were outside of a, of a community of a family, if it's clan, if you were outside the clan, you were just in big trouble. You were totally dependent upon the kindness of others. Same way with an orphan. In our country today, widows and orphans, at least theoretically, receive a certain amount of help from welfare and Social Security and things like that. I think that's, that's a reasonable thing, to help those who have no ability to help themselves. I think that pretty much every Christian would say amen to that. We don't have any problem with that. I think what Christians have a problem with is having money used to spend to help people that just hurt your age. But that's not what this is talking about. But of course we want to help people that can't help themselves. It, it goes against our very nature to not help someone that really needs the help. That's why it's so difficult when you see these fellows and ladies on the street. How do we know which ones of them really need the help? And which ones of them are making 10 to 15, almost $20 an hour, some of them, begging on the street corner? Sorcery, adultery, perjury, depriving workers of their wages, oppressing widows and orphans, mistreating aliens. 
That's one for our culture, isn't it? We need to be kind to everybody we see. Just because somebody may not even be here legally doesn't mean we can mistreat them. That's no excuse for mistreating someone. And to say that the, the people need to be here legally is not mistreating them. But boy, there is some mistreatment going on. And it's going on right here in Houston. And there's an area of Houston where a lot of the mistreatment is taking place. You know where that area is? Right here. It's been on the news recently. There are people that are mistreating some of these poor alien girls in such a way that would just make you want to throw up. They're turning some of these girls into sex slaves, and it's happening right in this area of Houston. God says, no, I'm not putting up with that, not for a minute. You don't take these young girls and turn them into these prostitutes and hold these things over them like that and think you're going to get away with it. No way. By the way, all these crimes were prohibited by the Mosaic Law. God's removing these sinners from Israel will be the answer to his question about justice. Okay, you ask the question. Back to verse 17 of chapter 2. Where is God's justice? Okay, I'll show you where God's justice is, God says. You clean this thing up, or I'm coming down really hard on you. The bottom line to this section, verse 17 of chapter 2 through verse 5 of chapter 3, is this. We cannot come to God on our own terms. 